Mark chapter 14. It's going to be in verses 43 through 52. A sting is a carefully planned operation involving deception. If you're like me, you've seen it carried out many times on television, and, and typically what happens is one of the good guys, well, they pretend to be one of the bad guys and fit in with them in order to actually catch the bad guys. So what we have in our text today is a sting operation, but in reverse. See, Judas has pretended to be one of the good guys for a few years now, and he is about to hand over the good guy to corrupt officials. The whole scene is, is actually quite dark, and, and it led me, anyhow, to ask the question, what is wrong with this picture? Everything seems so wrong. And perhaps you're familiar with the kids' magazine highlights. Anybody, anybody know highlights? Typically, they're like the dentist office or something, so not super exciting. But, but in highlights, uh, there's always this section called, what's wrong with this picture? And there are, there are two pictures set next to each other, and you're supposed to circle all the stuff that's wrong. For instance, the one I, I looked up on Google, uh, it had bicycles that had pizzas instead of wheels. They, the pizzas were their wheels. It had a woman's hair that was not hair, but a beehive. Dolphins swimming in a freshwater pond. I mean, ridiculous, right? Dolphins in freshwater. Uh, and a unicorn that was unicycling. That was my favorite. I mean, these things are, are fun. And it's, it's fun if you follow the magazine's tagline. It's fun with a purpose. My point here is that all the wrongs in the picture were purposeful. See, from the perspective of the reader, it's easy to see them all and, and circle them. But from the perspective of the author, all the wrongs in the picture were just as they were supposed to be. Likewise, in our text today, all seems to be going wrong in the picture before us. But all is unfolding according to the Father's plan. Judas' betrayal of Jesus is the epitome of wickedness. Yet the sovereign God of the universe authored this very scene. That which Judas intended for evil would be used by God for good. God makes even sin to be his servant. Today we will read about how Jesus is betrayed by a friend with a kiss, seized by sinners, and deserted by defective disciples. Yet despite this, the dawn of his suffering, he remains poised, and he steadfastly entrusts himself to the Father. Now that kind of gets us to our main idea today. It's that Jesus is faithful when we are faithless. He is the faithful Son of God that you and I were meant to be and can become when we are united to Him by faith. Jesus is the faithful Son. And then I'm going to exhort you today to, like Jesus, remain poised and to steadfastly entrust yourself to Christ. Outline's going to look like this. We're going to talk about the betrayal of Jesus in verses 43 through 46, the arrest of Jesus in verses 46 to 47, the obedience of Jesus in verses 48 to 49, and the desertion of Jesus in verses 50 through 52. Before we do all that, let's, let's pray together. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time that we can gather together as your people. Pray that you would increase our affection for one another, that you would help us to be a people that loves you and each other steadfastly, that we would be a people that is united around Christ and that are moving forward together in our pursuit of holiness. Lord, help us to display your glory. Help us to grow up into maturity, to become practically what we are already positionally, which is like you. Help us to pursue becoming beautiful as you have called us to be. Help us as your bride to be purifying ourselves by submission to your holy word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get our bearings a little bit to remember where we are in Mark's gospel since we've been on vacation from it the last couple weeks. Uh, it's Passover week. Jesus came in. He stirred all things up, and so people are, are looking to kill him. That's the long and the short of it. And most recently, we uh, observed at the Last Supper, Jesus revealed himself to be the true Passover lamb of God that dies in the place of the people in order to save them from slavery to sin. And, and so the Last Supper has just occurred, and they have been up just about all all night. It's getting close to almost morning, and, and Jesus in the garden has been praying. He knows what's about to happen to him, and he is troubled in his soul. And so he tells Peter and James and John, who he's taken with him into the olive grove or the olive press at Gethsemane, and he tells them, watch and pray. Stay awake that you don't fall into temptation. Yet throughout the night, Peter, James, and John have gone in and out of sleep. And so we read, if you want to uh, get just before the section we're going to be in today, verse 41, And Jesus came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And so we come to Verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. James Edwards writes in his commentary, there's also evidence of the Roman military in the arrest. The Gospel of John describes Judas heading up a cohort or a detachment of soldiers attended by a tribune at the arrest of Jesus. Judas comes to betray Jesus with a host composed of a crowd who's carrying swords and clubs and even a group of Roman soldiers. Judas is expecting a fight. And as the text makes clear with biting irony, Judas is one of the twelve. His, his treachery here is remarkable. I mean, it would be as if John Wilkes Booth had been a member of Lincoln's cabinet. That's the type of betrayal we are talking about. I mean, how, how is this possible? How is it possible for Judas to spend so much time with Jesus, yet so misunderstand him? I mean, had he plugged his ears with his fingers when Jesus spoke of his coming death, of his intent to give his life as a ransom for many? I mean, by all accounts, Judas was one of the twelve. But in the end, 
the truth is that he only appeared to be. Judas, a supposed disciple of Jesus, leads the revolt against Jesus. As he comes to double-cross Christ, we are, we are met with a flashback in verse 44, wherein we learn the details of Judas' nefarious plan. Verse 44, Now the betrayer. Pull up for a second there. Let's just stop there for a second. Now the betrayer. Judas has moved from being one of the twelve to being the betrayer. What? I mean, when I was reading this, I was just struck. What a summary of someone's life. So it got me to thinking, how, how would someone sum my life up right now? You know, West Virginia alum, I do love my Mountaineers. Maybe nerd, we'll get into some of that fantasy reading. Perhaps Christian? So I'm going to put the same question to you. If someone were to look at your life objectively, maybe they're writing a biography about you, how would they sum you up? Well, Jane Doe, follower of Christ, or Jane Doe, lover of money, lover of self, betrayer. How might someone sum your life up? All right, back to verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. This sting would be triggered by a signal. Judas will out Jesus with a kiss. And this malicious kiss sentences our Lord to death. The term kiss of death actually comes into our English vocabulary from this incident. And if you look it up in the dictionary, you'll see the phrase means an intimacy with something or someone that subsequently leads to its or your destruction. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. Look at what Matthew writes in the parallel account, or I guess listen to it, uh, in 26, verse 49 and 50. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, friend. Do what you came to do. Then they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Despite knowing Judas' despicable motives for the kiss, Jesus calls him friend. Wow. I know it's a little trite. You say, don't only talk the talk, but walk the walk. I mean, Jesus does that. He is living out the word of God. He's told everyone in his teaching, love your enemies as yourself, and here he is living that out. I mean, his love for even Judas here is still jaw-dropping. I mean, it's, this is more than loving your rivals, right? This is more than an Ohio State fan and a Michigan fan sharing Thanksgiving dinner. It's more than a, a Virginia Tech fan and a UVA fan, you know, sharing the same church together, Steve, Carrie. It's more than a Democrat shaking hands with a Republican. It's more than that. This is extraordinary. Jesus loves and is caring for the man who plunges a knife into his back by planting a kiss upon his cheek. 
amazing. I mean, how, how can Jesus love like this? How can he call him friend? It's because he knows the love of the Father. See, when you understand the limitless love of God, when you understand God's love for you in the person and work of Christ Jesus, then you become free to love others as fearlessly, as ferociously, and as wonderfully as he does. So the question is, do you understand the love of God like this? Who do you need to love like this? Who have you removed your affection from because they're your enemy? Another question we might ask is, why does Judas respond to the love of Jesus with betrayal? Simply put, unbelief. Sin. Sin is always seductive and always destructive. And somewhere along the way, Judas is seduced into thinking that following his heart instead of Jesus would make him happy. He, like the others, had left everything in order to follow Jesus. And at some point, Jesus was not enough anymore. Judas's heart cried out, we know from John's account, for money. Remember, he had stolen from the money bag over which he was the treasurer. But still, even that wasn't enough to sate his desire for riches. I mean, the siren song of sin played over and over again within his soul, beckoning him to deny Jesus and follow himself. His heart whispered sweet nothings in his ear. If you have money, you'll be happy. This Jesus is a scrub. He doesn't even have a place to lay his head at night. If you want to be somebody, if you want to have satisfaction, you need to follow yourself and deny him. Sin seduces by making promises it cannot keep. It lies and tells you, tells you that joy can be found in stuff or in significant others or in family. or in, It just tells you that satisfaction and joy can be found anywhere and everywhere within Jesus Christ. Sin appears as a friend and betrays with a kiss. Sin appears as a friend and betrays with a kiss. And so Judas exchanges the truth of God for sin's lie and he kisses Jesus onto the cross. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John 18 tells us that it's Peter who draws the sword. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The host of Judas goes to arrest Jesus and Peter quickly flashes his sword across the face of the enemy. He cuts a man's ear off. I mean, this detail means one of two things. Either Peter is really, really good with a sword, right? He aims for the ear and gets the ear, or... He's really, really bad with a sword. I mean, he aims for the head and all he gets is an ear. 
Anyhow, Peter's ready to die. He's not going to fall away. He's ready to make good on his promise that he would stand with Jesus, even if it meant his death, just a few verses before. He's going to prove Jesus wrong. Remember, Jesus predicted he would deny. Peter's saying, no, I will stand here. I will fight for my Lord. Sometimes it's easier to fight than it is to trust. I mean, Peter, he doesn't deny Jesus here before the mob. He's ready to stand. But, but later, before the small servant girl. And, and as I was thinking about this, I just thought, you know, sometimes the greatest trials we face, they come in unexpected moments. Now, it seems like Peter's prepared to stand up before the mob. He's ready to fight, ready to flash that sword. But as he stands in, in the cool of the morning around a fire with a servant girl, he's not quite prepared. And he fails. And are you prepared to trust Jesus in big moments and small moments in every moment in life? So I want to point out, Peter doesn't deny Jesus yet. He's standing next to him. But he, like Judas, misunderstands Jesus. Both of them expect Jesus to fight, right? I think we could apply the same questions to Peter that we did to Judas. How is it possible for Peter to spend so much time with Jesus and so misunderstand Jesus? Had he plugged his ears at the predictions of his death? Had he ignored Jesus' numerous sayings that he would give himself over as a ransom for many? How is it possible for Peter to trust his sword more than his Savior? I mean, ultimately, Jesus doesn't need Peter to fix the situation, right? And in Matthew's account, we hear Jesus says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will not at once send more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus is still in control here. He doesn't need Peter. If you remember uh, a few weeks ago, we, we, I sang Charles in charge. I'm not going to put you through that again. But we said that Jesus is in charge. That was the, the point of that sermon. Tried to make you think of a little mnemonic device there. But Jesus is still in charge. He's still in control. And he remains poised enough to bring peace to, a situa- to this situation that was really volatile. I mean, he heals the servant's ear, Luke tells us. And, and I've always wondered how he heals this ear, too, if he just picked it up off the ground and, like, slapped it on his head. Uh, or maybe he spoke and it bloomed out of the side of his head like a flower. I, I don't know how it happened. But he heals the ear and he quells some of the tension that's in the ear. And, and the point here is that Jesus does not want to establish his kingdom by wielding the sword, but by going under the divine sword of God's wrath. Jesus will not die by the sword in this garden, but by the design of his plan on the cross. I also want to point out here the difference between Peter and Jesus. I mean, Jesus is faithfully entrusting himself to the Father's will, while Peter is taking matters into his own hands. See, Peter's natural instinct isn't to trust what Jesus has said, but to pull out his sword. Aren't we kind of like Peter? We say we're on the side of justice, of peace, of fairness. Say that we're willing to trust the Lord, but when a challenge arises, don't we like feel for that sword hilt? Isn't it easier for us to fix things ourselves? more natural to take matters into our own hands than entrust ourselves to God? I mean, how often do you, instead of praying, like Peter, reach for your weapon of choice and resolve to fix things? 
What wrong weapons do you reach for instead of prayer? What do you trust instead of Jesus? It's often easier to fight than it is to trust. It's more natural to try and take control of our lives than it is to submit them to Christ. Yet this is what Jesus does. He entrusts himself to the Father with the words, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Verse 48. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus meets his captors here with holy sarcasm. I mean, we could paraphrase him like this if we wanted. Did you come out here to arrest a dangerous criminal? I mean, really? Swords and clubs and soldiers? I was just in the temple all week, man. Why didn't you arrest me then? Why do you feel the need to arrest me now? This is bogus. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is how it has to go. I mean, Jesus is a little miffed with these cowards arresting him under the cover of night. Yet he knows this is the hour for which he was born. So instead of easily killing these yellow-bellied namby-pambies with a flick of his finger, he allows himself to be taken by them. He submits to his Father's will. Let the Scripture be fulfilled picture seems all wrong, but all is going according to plan. That which is intended for evil is used by God for good, for God makes even evil to be his servant. Jesus knows and trusts the Father, and as a consequence of that unbridled faith, he is able to remain poised even as he is betrayed by a friend with a kiss, seized by sinners, and deserted by his disciples. Friends, we too can remain poised. When the picture of your life seems wrong, you too can continue to steadfastly entrust yourself to the Father. Knowing that you've been adopted into God's family, knowing just as Jesus did, that no matter how ugly or how dark the circumstances of life become, God is at work in them. Knowing that in the end, God overrules all evil with his goodness. And that you can trust him to do rightly. Even if you can't understand his his reasoning at the time. But Brett shared a quote last week with us from John Piper. He said, at any given time, God is doing 10,000 things in your life. You might be aware of three of them. I mean, God is doing all these things all the time. Just because we're not aware of them doesn't mean they're not happening. Doesn't mean they're not there. And while we aren't aware of all God's reasons for his ordering of events, we are aware of his sovereignty. We are aware of the fact that he does order events. And we are aware of his holy character and that he is wholly trustworthy. See, we can have faith. We can remain poised and steadfastly and trust ourselves to the Father because we know who we have trusted. We've trusted a king who is willing to die for us in our place so that we might have relationship with him. A king who is willing to endure all the wrongs in the picture so that we might be part of a beautiful picture. So friends, whenever 
life gets sideways. Things don't go according to plan. No need to, to freak out. No need to waver. Simply trust. Remain poised. And remember who it is that's in control. And who it is that is championing your cause. Remember that you know Jesus and that he is for you, not against you. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. This seemingly innocuous statement carries quite a punch. It carries an incriminating wallop. If you remember just a few short moments before, all drank the cup of the Passover. All pledged to die with Jesus. And here, all desert. Jesus' words prove true. He's handed over to sinners to die. Jesus is abandoned picture's all wrong. I mean, from the disciples' view, Jesus is supposed to establish his kingdom, not be killed before it begins. Things are not going according to their plans. He's not the conquering Messiah king they had expected. And so they leave. I mean, surely we can imagine their position. They had planned for glory and greatness, but instead found shame and fear. I mean, I want you to try and imagine what it was like to be here. It's a terrifying scene. It's, it's dark. It's incredible tension and fear and anger and crisis in the air. I mean, Peter lunged at a guy with a sword. You don't lunge at somebody with a sword and cut off their ear unless there is a heart-thumping tension and anger and, and fear and, and mob explosivity in the air. Put yourself in the text. Just let the sheer narration of the facts allow you to feel something of what it must have been like to be in that moment. And these soldiers, at any point they wanted to, could have simply overwhelmed and killed every last one of the disciples. I mean, as soon as Peter flashed that sword, they could have just ended them. If Jesus hadn't interceded on behalf of a wounded slave, perhaps they would have. But even after Jesus heals the slave's ear, there is still fear. And as he is bound and led away, they flee. Mark captures uh, the flight of the disciples, I think, by cataloging the shame of an unidentified naked man. Verse 51. And a young man, this is someone who followed Jesus, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So this is a follower of Jesus. He's semi-close. And then they're getting ready to, to take him in too. And they grab him and whatever garment he has on slips off so that he is naked. And then he is running away. And so the first streaker was born, right? Why, why this? Why is this included in, in Mark's gospel? I think a couple reasons, and I'm going to try to get to them all here. In the Bible, nakedness is a sign of shame and disgrace. And so it's perfectly appropriate in this case. See, Mark is leaving the man unidentified and intentionally. 
See, this young man is a representation of all who fled in desperation when Jesus was arrested. His lack of identity invites the readers of Mark's gospel. It invites us to examine our own readiness to abandon Jesus. And he right notes. This scene invites us to stop and ponder where we ourselves belong. Are we like the disciples, full of bluster, one minute sleep the next, and confused shame the next? Are we ready to betray Jesus if it suits our other plans, or if he fails to live up to our expectations? Or are we prepared to keep watch with him in the garden, sharing his anguished prayer? They all flee. I mean, as discouraging as this scene is, I think it's also greatly encouraging because it teaches us about the greatness of God's love and mercy for sinners. Those that would flee the garden naked would find themselves clothed in Jesus' righteous robes and the instruments of his mercy. You see, God's love and mercy are so great that he builds his church with this bunch of deserters. God uses this ragtag group of disciples who fail over and over and over again to display his glory. These guys are the seeds of the church from these 12, or I guess 11, from these men, the church is born. God uses these weak men to accomplish great purposes, to show his power. And it's amazing. And it should encourage us because God's love and mercy have not changed. He still continues to use weak disciples who fail over and over and over again to accomplish his will and to bring glory unto himself. How might he use you Additionally, by recounting this young man's naked flight from the garden, Mark may be reminding us of another garden. Keller writes, In the Garden of Eden, too, there were people who were given a test, and they failed. They were exposed as naked and fled in shame. Centuries later, we are in another garden, and here is another test. Everyone fails, and in one way or another, they're either waving swords around or fleeing in naked shame. But this garden is different. There is one who is passing the test. There is one who is faithful. Again, we see that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Again, we see that Jesus is the faithful son. That where the rest of humanity fails, the God-man succeeds. He is faithful. Even when we are faithless. And this picture of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, it, it, it appears completely wrong and it is utterly sinful, but it's unfolding according to the Father's purpose. Jesus had together with the Father and the Spirit planned to use all the evils that would happen on this darkest of night to bring about the greatest of goods on the brightest of mornings when Jesus would resurrect. Jesus planned to step out of heaven onto earth and become a man. Jesus planned to take off his royal crown of gold and have a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. Jesus planned to be spit upon instead of worshipped. He planned 
to be beaten instead of beloved. He planned to be crucified and dead and buried. He planned and endured everything that is wrong with this picture so that we don't have to. Jesus planned to take hell so that we could have heaven. All these wrongs served his purpose, which is to rescue humanity from the pain and suffering and death that we had chosen. Jesus came to save us all from the source of our problems, sin. Sin sin is simply choosing to listen to your heart instead of God's word. It's submitting to yourself rather than to him. I mean, we all have this problem. We're all made to worship God. But instead, we we choose to set up for ourselves many gods. Worship them instead of him or ourselves instead of him. And, And the result of our perverted worship is the brokenness we see in our world about us. I mean, we were created to enjoy life together with God. But we're unfaithful and rebellious. We rejected God. And rebellion against any king, it earns you death. I mean, traitors to the king are not allowed to live. The point here is that we all deserve to hang. That's our problem. And God's solution to our problem is Jesus. Jesus, the king, himself walked in perfect submission to the Father. He lives a perfectly worshipful, perfectly faithful life, and he deserved to reign in perfect peace for all time. He deserved to inherit countless blessings. But instead of just taking what he deserved, Jesus made an exchange with us. See, he gives those who trust in him the riches and blessing that rightly belong to him, and he takes the curse that rightly belongs to them himself. See, this is the good news of the gospel. The good and mighty king, Jesus, has traded place with the traitors. See, we deserve to hang, but he hangs for us. This is God's solution to our problem. A a great exchange wherein, by placing our faith in Jesus, his manifold perfections are credited to our accounts, and his propitiatory death is counted as our own. Not only his death, but his life are given to us by way of our union with him. Because of our union with Jesus, we need not flee from the justice of God in shame-filled nakedness and fear, but can stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ, saved by the power of his blood. This gospel tells us how God has utilized all the wrongs in the picture to serve his benevolent purpose of rescuing humanity and bringing glory unto himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. We rejoice in the fact that we are saved by grace alone, not by anything that we have done or ever could do, but by your unmerited favor. We thank you for revealing yourself to us and plucking us out of the water in which we would have drowned. Father, we pray that we would offer our lives in obedience to you, not in an obligatory way that is cold and unrelational, but in a way that is hot 
and affectionate, passionate. Pray that you would revive our love for you this morning. That each day our love for you would grow deeper and it would become hotter. That we might display your glory to the nations and to one another as we live out the glorious truth of this gospel. As we become the beauties that you have made us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to give you all of our worship, all of our praise, and all of the glory that you rightly deserve this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.